Hey, I'm Bailey. I'm Michael. And welcome back to the Facing the Gates podcast. Believe it or not, David is present in this one. He's been absent for the past two. Absolutely shocking. He is a lot. Yeah, he's not on the mic as usual. Uh, That is your bi-weekly David update. So uh, we're here to interview Pastor John of uh, Bethlehem Lutheran Church. How are you, Pastor John? Very well, very well. Thank you. Um, so to start out, um, would you be able to tell us kind of, uh, a little bit of your, your history, how you became a pastor, who you are, that kind of thing? Sure. Uh, Reader's Digest version. Um, I am a second career pastor. Uh, I was a, uh, actually in law enforcement for 17 years in East Tennessee, uh, in the Knoxville area, uh, and over many years of prayer and contemplation, uh, finally took the plunge and went to the, uh, seminary. Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is one of uh, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's two seminaries, the other one's in St. Louis. Uh, That's a four-year graduate school type education and and formation to be a parish pastor. Uh, Acquired, earned the Master of Divinity degree in 2018. Uh, And from the seminary, I was uh, called into the pastoral ministry here at uh, Bethlehem Lutheran Church. So I've, I've been here uh, three years at this point and, and, uh, have no intent of, of leaving and they seem to be happy with me and I'm very happy here too. So it's been quite a, quite an experience. Yeah. Cool. Um, so one of the, one of the things we talked about before doing this series is, uh, cause we've talked about up to this point, um, reasons to believe reasons to disbelieve and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That necessarily leads to the logical question: If you, if you uh, believe all the right things, what is the purpose of going to church? Um, so, obviously, I do believe there is a reason to go to church. Um, but what? How would you explain uh, the place of going to church? What would be the role of going to church? Well, from the Lutheran tradition, and I would say by default, the the historical tradition of the church, uh, the reason for going to church is because this is where God's people gather to hear God's word and to uh, partake of his sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are means of grace. Uh, Baptism and the Lord's Supper is uh, where God attaches his word to these elements, water and bread and wine, to give us everything that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, uh, faith. And so those things, the word and the sacrament are at the church. Um, early on, we see in, in the book of Acts in the New Testament uh, that uh, St. Luke writes, the, the disciples uh, devoted themselves to, to gathering together uh, to hear the apostles' teaching uh, to breaking bread, which is the Lord's Supper, and prayer and fellowship. So this is why uh, people, uh, certainly Christians, should go to church regularly because this is where Christians gather around uh, the Word and the sacrament. This is where God comes to us, bestowing upon us uh, again and again His forgiveness in a, a formal setting where we can enjoy that together and encourage each other in the faith as well, praying for and with each other. Okay. There's two things that about that that kind of stood out for me. Number one, mm-hmm. um, we have heard, because a good thing about asking 
the same questions to all the pastors pretty much is mm-hmm. we have kind of a control group have a, a little bit of a control there um we have heard that from other pastors that churches where christians go so that is that that's kind of a convergence among a couple other pastors that have said that that i think that leans more credibility to that might be a good reason i mean there's obviously other reasons and the second thing um which this is not uh, strictly a question I have on the list, but um, I noticed you mentioned that you have sacraments. Mm-hmm. Some people are scared of that word, and they prefer to call them ordinances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned there are two. Um, so this is kind of off the cuff, but would you be able to kind of explain, which actually, let, let's do this from like a broad brush perspective, because we're going to go more okay. in depth with um, the Lord's Supper Mm-hmm. in a later question certainly but why are there two sacraments and what are they very good well the first thing we have to do is is define what is a sacrament and uh we would say that a sacrament is is something that has been instituted by christ uh to bestow the forgiveness of sins uh, where he attaches god's word to an earthly element by that definition, a baptism certainly is a sacrament. It's how a Christian comes into the church in the first place. Of uh, When God attaches his word to the water of baptism and a person is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, at that point, that person is receiving forgiveness and eternal life. Uh, the old is, is being drowned and the new person is being raised to life. The being reborn, as they say, being born again. Uh, and the person is actually receiving the Holy Spirit, which uh, he himself works faith in the person. So baptism is an amazing, wonderful sacrament. Uh, the other sacrament is the Lord's Supper, where Christ has instituted, you know, on the day that he was arrested and, and shortly thereafter crucified, the Lord's Supper, where he took bread and wine and told his apostles, this is my body, this is my blood, uh, this do in remembrance of me. So in the church, from that point on, we have the the continuing distribution of that sacrifice that was made for us by which we have the forgiveness of sins and our faith is strengthened by Jesus distributing uh, in, with, and under the bread and the wine, his very body and his blood to everybody who receives it, to all Christians, to their great blessing. Some would say that when the pastor pronounces absolution, uh, this is also a sacrament. That's one of those things that pastors get together over beer and may argue with all day long. So I could be swayed either way. Um, Luther, in early writings, said that holy absolution is a sacrament. In other writings, he did not. So, But certainly baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments, uh, means of grace. I like to, to say they are delivery systems of the gospel. So, you know, certainly we receive, uh, we are offered the forgiveness of sins through simply hearing God's word or reading scripture because God's word bears the Holy Spirit. But in addition to that, uh, he attaches his word to these sacraments. So, and the message is always the same. You're forgiven. You have eternal life. It's finished. It's taken care of. So 
that is, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. So confession is kind of like one of those gray areas. It's like, maybe it's a sacrament, maybe it's not. I understand because for most Protestants, they're going to say there are two sacraments or ordinances, if they're afraid of the word sacrament. Um, but I think from what I'm aware of, the Lutherans are the only ones that might consider confession um, and absolution as a sacrament. Well, um, first I have to, to touch on the, the the difference between an ordinance and a sacrament. Okay. Uh, we say sacrament because these are things that are based on grace. In many traditions, uh, they will consider baptism and the Lord's Supper to be things that we do because Jesus said we have to. Obligations. Um, more an emphasis on, on law, really, than the gospel, the grace of God whereas a sacrament is a means of grace. So, um, and when we speak of confession and absolution, uh, what we're really speaking of is, is that absolution. Because first we certainly uh, confess you know, before God and, and uh, also available is, is the opportunity for private confession if someone desires it to the pastor, which is confidential. Uh, the fact that we have committed sins, we are by nature sinful and unclean. Um, upon that confession, the pastor declares what Jesus Christ himself would declare if he was physically here face to face with you. Your sins are forgiven for the sake of Jesus Christ, who has come and has suffered and died for you. And for his sake, your sins are, are completely and totally forgiven. That's it. You know, at that point, those sins which have been weighing against you, they're gone. They're gone. So sacraments, um, it's it's a higher order kind of thing. It's like sacraments actually are a means of communicating grace. They they do something in a sense, um, whereas an ordinance doesn't necessarily carry that connotation. Is that kind of correct? As I've seen um, baptism and Lord's Supper among various traditions, uh, ordinance would be more along the line of an obligation that, that doesn't do anything. It's more a demonstration that a person is a Christian. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm a Christian, mm -hmm. uh, not uh, so much I'm doing this to receive forgiveness or to be strengthened in the faith or even it, with regards to baptism. Uh, I'm doing this because I want to be a Christian or because I want my child to, to be you know, saved and to have that, that spiritual rebirth. So, all right. That makes sense. I think so, that, that definitely adds so, some clarification. So, to that. Yeah, I, it I, I'd say in a nutshell, yeah, a sacrament does something. And, uh, we recognize that, uh, where it is considered more of an, an ordinance and obligation. It is not being recognized that, that real wonderful things are actually happening here. Yeah. Because as an outsider, when I hear ordinance, I think of city ordinances, exactly. I think of laws and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. All right. And for our next question, what is the itinerary of your average church service like? I know it's going to change with different things, but just on average. May I pass this out to you? Yes. I, I knew that question was coming. And, and so this is a copy of my copy of uh, a recent service. And it has the... We, we have a, a liturgy. We are liturgical, which means there's a definite format uh, beginning in our service. We typically start with an opening hymn, uh, but then 
most importantly, every service begins with uh, confession and absolution, where the uh, the congregation gathered uh, confesses not specific you know sins in all their gory details, of course, but just the general confession that we are sinful and unclean, and we ask for the sake of Christ that He would forgive us. At that point, I, the pastor, announce that, that uh, well, I'll just read it verbatim, Almighty God in His mercy has given His Son to die for you, and for His sake forgives you all of your sins. As a called and ordained servant of Christ, and by His authority, I therefore forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. At that point, we have come before God, confess that we are sinful, plead for His mercy, and His mercy through the mouth, through the voice of the pastor, is announced to everybody. Uh, then we go into a service of the Word, which is concentrating on the Scriptures. Uh, we have lectionary readings, uh, set Scriptures for each given Sunday in the church year. And so, you know, on a specific date, certain Scriptures are going to be read, and the sermon uh, is uh, written, uh, drawn from one of the Scripture texts. Uh, traditionally on a Sunday, the gospel text. So uh, in this particular case, on this particular service, which was June 6th, uh, the gospel text was from Mark chapter 3. Um, so, and then we would have some, you know, a, a sermon hymn. The sermon would be preached, after which the congregation stands and we recite one of the ecumenical creeds, either the apostles, which we tend to... Uh, recite confessing our faith by by reciting together the apostles creed on non-communion sundays when we have communion we recite the nicene creed as we have here and then once a year on holy trinity sunday we recite the big long two-page athanasian creed which uh, uh, is a defense of god revealing himself as father son and holy spirit it really gets into that uh, named after athanasius who was a defender of the Trinity uh, in the face of heresies which denied that Jesus is God or that uh, that uh, he that God died for our sins things like that so uh, of course there's the offering um, and then we get into the service of the sacrament um, where the Lord's Supper is prepared and distributed and there's a, a format for that um, while the the Lord's Supper is being distributed, uh, people that are not at the altar are singing a couple of, of hymns that are appointed, the distribution hymns. Uh, after that, we give thanks for Christ distributing his body and blood to us. And uh, then I will pronounce the benediction, uh, which actually comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers. Moses was told... When you bless the people, say this blessing over them, and we retain that ironic benediction. Um, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace, which is a very traditional uh, benediction, a blessing for the people as they depart. And then we have a closing hymn, and uh, that concludes the service. The service lasts generally about an hour. So on a, a full Sunday where communion is being served. So that's that's the format of, of our service. And anywhere that you have a, a liturgical uh, congregation, it's, it's going to follow that format. Yeah, very structured. And yes, very structured. Yeah. 
Okay. I like I like the uh, bulletin. It's very easy to follow along. That's why uh, we have it. <laughs> yeah, for <clears throat> someone who visits, sometimes when you go to, a, I don't know, say a Greek Orthodox church and mm. you're an outsider, you don't really know what's going on, but thankfully I had someone there kind of guiding me. So um, it's good to have, um, especially for visitors, um, we mentioned like when we went to, I think there's a lot of um, parallels to the Presbyterian church in terms of the, yeah, the, the format of the service. The creeds and the mm-hmm. hymns, which... I prefer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, you know, like it's easier to follow along for somebody mm-hmm. uh, like that. And then, and you know, I, I think uh, the, the Presbyterian church was also easy to kind yeah. of follow along. It's not like too intimidating. Like there's all this mm-hmm. stuff going on that you don't know what's going on. Like right. if you go to a Catholic or an Orthodox church, they're like, they'll kneel here and then like do prostrations and then you mm-hmm. meet the sign of the cross and like, you don't know what's going on. Um, granted that's, uh, if you were to go that route and become Catholic or Orthodox, that's just part of the growing pains. You kind of have to learn that, but, yeah. and, um, but it's, I've been to some churches where it's very off the cuff. Yeah. Not too organized or traditional. And those can be extremely confusing to the young mind. Yeah. But it's not intimidating. It's not yeah. like I'm going to come in here and I'm not going to have any idea what's going on. It's like I can I can follow along with the bulletin and, you know. And, and if you can read. I can blend in pretty well. You can sing along too. Yeah. Yeah. Which is something I do appreciate. And so for our next question, mm-hmm. what is the place of your church within the community you serve? Okay. Um, I'm not sure I understand that question. Could you elaborate just a little bit? Basically, uh, what uh, I know, like certain churches do different projects for their community. Mm-hmm. They do certain outreach things, um, raising money for different groups. Mm-hmm. What what does your church do within the community mm-hmm. abroad? Mm-hmm. Right, right. What are our ministries? Um, we do contribute to Life Choices Pregnancy Resource Center. Uh, we contribute to ACTS. Uh, those are things that we do outside of the congregation. Uh, but primarily, what are the, by the sorry, mm-hmm. um, what what are those two? By the way, if you could Life Choices it. Pregnancy Center. That is a a ministry uh, in Aiken that uh, serves uh, women who have unintended pregnancies, and uh, uh, offers and and fervently promotes uh, options uh, that uh, reject, of course, elective abortion. We want to save the child's life and and uh, encourage the mother uh, to either uh, consider adoption or uh, raising the child as opposed to killing it. So um, it's a a Christian organization. Uh, They do wonderful work. And so we we contribute uh, to the support of that, to, you know, the the sanctity of human life and and saving, uh, you know, these these pregnancies that uh, were not intended and the women maybe very scared and confused and even ashamed. And uh, through Life Choices Pregnancy Center, they are reassured that, uh, that you know, God has forgiven them for uh, mistakes that have been made. Uh, if the child is not a mistake, it is, uh, you know, a blessing of, of God and uh, a human being uh, who is to be uh, born and, and raised and, 
and hopefully brought to the faith uh, himself. But uh, you know, trying to to uh, to keep them from that that horrible, horrible, um, sinful act of 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 infanticide, that you know, elective abortion, which is is so easy, but uh, is so traumatizing for a woman who actually uh, makes that choice. And uh, you know, knowing persons who have have done that, it it does haunt them for the rest of their lives, and they very deeply regret it. So, um, certainly, we would want them to know that that you know, with repentance, they are certainly forgiven for the sake of Christ as all sins are forgiven for his sake. But uh, we would, you know, hope that uh, that women with, with pregnancies that they did not intend to have would would choose life and, and seek places like uh, the Pregnancy Resource Center here, the Life Choices. ACTS uh, stands for Area Churches Together Serving. And uh, various, most if not all of the uh, congregations in the Aiken area support ACTS it's uh, what years ago would probably be called a community chest where there's groceries available, uh, clothing, things like that for people in need. But even more importantly, they don't just hand out stuff. They actually uh, work to get people back on their feet, which is the idea. You know, If, if you're just giving handouts, you're just enabling uh, this continued dependency. Whereas you know, a, a handout may help in an emergency, but then beyond that, there's what does this person need to do to to get back on their feet and take care of themselves? Yeah, that's that's truly helping a person in need. I think I have so, heard of that. Yeah, but I just I just yeah. didn't know what it was yeah. called. I guess. Yeah, through my side work, I do a lot of donating to Acts Cumby Center, uh, even some of the Salvation Army, and so I I knew what Acts was, and it is a big help in the community because there is a large homeless or food short or clothing short community and mm-hmm. Aiken that people just don't know about. All right. I'll, uh, I'll let you ask the next one. Alrighty, And for our next one, how is your church governed? How is it governed as far as the congregation goes or like, uh, the overall hierarchy, um, ah. of, of, you know, like, yeah, mm-hmm. Hopefully that makes sense. If you need sure, more, sure. Well, um, I'll I'll try to answer it. If if you need clarification, please let me know. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the the parish level, at the congregation level, uh, of course, uh, as the called pastor, um, my uh, area of responsibility and authority is is the word and the sacrament. Uh, administrative tasks are really. Uh, the obligation of of the laity, and so we have a, a congregation president and a council, uh, a board of elders that works with me to to help you know keep up with people, make sure they're doing all right, and uh, make me aware of things that maybe I was not aware of. You know, someone may say something to an elder uh, that for whatever reason they didn't want to uh, approach the pastor about, but we can we can deal with that. So. So most administrative, although I do certainly have influence in administrative decisions, and a part of my call is to help foster uh, leadership among the laity, uh, the pastor's place is really the spiritual well-being of the congregation. So, you know, if it's 
you know, I might have an opinion on something, but if it if I cannot say from the scriptures this should be done this way, then I have no more weight in the matter than anybody else here. So, which is a good thing. Uh, beyond the parish level, uh, we are a synod. What that means is uh, congregations uh, function pretty much independently, and uh, we don't have like an Episcopal uh, bishopric where a bishop would come in and say, okay this guy's your pastor here, like it or not, and he's going to do this whether he wants to or not. No, the, the congregations serve independently doing what they feel is best as far as how to, to conduct themselves within the uh, the doctrines of the confessional Lutheran Church, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. So uh, the purpose of the synod is there's things that uh, congregations can do better as a unified unit than they can do independently. So, right. So, so I take it, um, most churches are, are operate mostly independent, but they, they're still under the Missouri Synod Lutheran umbrella. So there's obviously certain restrictions, mm -hmm. um, placed on them, but they're more so independent. So does that mean, uh, that if we were to go to another Lutheran Missouri Synod church, that it could be the very different from this one. The The style of worship could be different. Uh, they may have a different personality as far as the, the congregational culture, but if they are a member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, the doctrine should not change at all. It should be the same confession of faith. So uh, as far as church government, uh, the, the synod and at the lower level, the mid-level of the district, uh, serves primarily as a resource, a support, and in an advisory capacity to the congregations who are members of the synod. Okay, gotcha. Um, so this is, this is probably a, a vague question, uh, but I um, what exactly about what is unique about Lutheranism compared to other Christian confessions? What kind of sets you guys apart? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well. A lot of people don't realize that the Lutherans were the first Protestants. Yeah, before before uh, Luther touched off the Protestant Reformation, uh, it was the Catholic Church, the Church of the Middle Ages, um, which of course in the West is the, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so Lutheranism, uh, in a nutshell, uh, we center around the, the three solas, uh, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia. Uh, in English, uh, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. Uh, that is really uh, what separated uh, the Lutherans from the get-go uh, from the medieval church. The gospel had been obscured. Luther rediscovered the gospel and said, we are saved by faith alone, well, by grace alone, through faith alone, and this is revealed to us through Scripture alone. And in a nutshell, that uh, that is the defining uh, trait of, of confessional Lutheranism and the Lutheran Church. Okay. Uh, could you go maybe a little more in-depth with those three solas? What okay. exactly do they all mean? Because I know that's kind of a big thing for the yes, Protestant Reformation. Yes. Certainly. Sola gratia. We are by nature sinful and unclean. We have this original sin. We are made after 
of the image of our first parents, Adam and Eve. So uh, what that means is that apart from Christ, we are consigned to hell and eternally damned. Yeah, sorry to tell you that, but there's another side of that coin. Uh, but for the sake of Christ, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, his son was sent into the world not to condemn it, but that it might be saved. This is the grace of God. Uh, we receive that for ourselves only through faith. You know, there's nothing that I can do to get right with God. Jesus Christ has made me right with God. Uh, I apprehend that simply when I believe that. And even that is not something that I can uh, make myself do through logic or intellect or wanting to enough. When we hear the gospel, when we hear God's word, it convicts us of our sin through God's law, which is written in our hearts. We know right from wrong. I don't care what anyone you know, wants to rationalize. We know what's right and we know what's wrong inherently. That's God's law written in our hearts. We know we're sinful. What we don't know, except through Scripture and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit through Scripture, is that God loves us so much that he has saved us. He has taken our judgment upon himself in Jesus Christ and traded our guilt for his innocence. So this is solely the grace of God. And once again, uh, the Holy Spirit only reveals that to us, comes to us through his word alone, whether through the sacrament of baptism or through hearing the gospel, we receive that spiritual rebirth, that, that believing that, hey, this is true. This is, this is real. God, you know, died for me. And uh, so, so that's why we, we get those, that, uh, that motto of grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. So. Okay. Gotcha. Um, now I understand there's probably uh, a little bit of nuance between Martin Luther and Lutheranism. Mm -hmm. Um, not, not everything that Luther taught is taught in the Lutheran church. So could you elaborate a little bit on that? Right. Well, Luther was a person. Lutheranism is a body of doctrine. So uh, Luther himself hated the fact that, uh, you know, the, the movement that he'd started uh, inadvertently uh, was labeled Lutheranism. He said, don't call it Lutheranism, call it Christian, you know, call it the church. Uh, it's important to remember and considering the history of the church that that Luther did not want to revolt from the church. He loved the church, loved it. That's why when a person comes into a Lutheran church, their first uh, reaction is generally that we're a flavor of Roman Catholicism because so much of the traditional you know, uh, trappings are retained. Uh, he didn't want to lose that. He wanted to bring back what had been lost, obscured at least, which is the gospel. So Lutheranism is getting back to the teachings of the apostles, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ back front and center to everything that the church is and does and teaches. And our, our worship, our, the life of a Christian centers around the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That is Lutheranism. So once again, Luther was a person. And as you alluded to, he, he was not perfect. He was a, a gifted theologian. With regards to Christian theology, frankly, Luther got it right. Uh, other things he may have written, not so much. He was a sinful man just like everybody else. 
Gotcha. So, so Lutheranism is kind of uh, the best of Luther, if you will. Well, it's the the theology that that he <clears throat> articulated, and okay. of course, other theologians of that time. So, and okay. originally, the movement once again, you know, the word Protestant was because the the people that were uh, getting away from what the Roman Catholic Church had been teaching were called protesters, Protestants, or Lutherans. So that's where the the terminology really originated from. Okay. So and the name stuck. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is gonna, this is this is gonna sound like a trick question, but I don't mean it like that because I've heard um, some Lutherans have gone as far as to say that they are the Catholic Church, um, mm -hmm. not meaning you know the Catholic, like the Roman Catholic Church, right. but Catholic in the sense that Catholic means one. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, is, is the Lutheran Church the Catholic Church? That's yes. not, that might be confusing to some no, people. No, not at but... all. Not at all. Um, yes, yes. The When you consider the fact that, properly speaking, Catholic is merely Latin for universal. So uh, the the... Catholic faith is what every is the the universal faith what what every Christian believes the basics as outlined in the the ecumenical creeds the Catholic creeds this is different from uh, the Roman Catholic Church which is another body of doctrine unto itself certainly a Christian tradition but Roman Catholicism has other uh, doctrines uh, within it that uh, are simply not consistent with the scriptures themselves and are over and above the scriptures. So uh, in contemporary society, when people hear Catholic, they automatically think Roman Catholic. Right. Uh, properly speaking, we should define, you know, Romanism, Roman Catholicism from the Catholic faith. Yeah, or the, the way Christian I put faith. it is like capital C and lowercase c. Exactly, exactly. So so in, in that context, when you're saying the Catholic faith, uh, you're really saying you could use interchangeably the word Christian, the Christian faith. So, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, just double check. Good job. Very professional. According Nobody knows what happened. <laughs> Nobody. According to your tradition's theological perspective, what must one do to be saved? Mm -hmm. Repent and believe. The end. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Period. That's it. Jesus Christ has done it all. Repent and believe. All right. Re repent. Uh, I know that was a very articulate answer. Um, would you be able to kind of elaborate what must you believe? What must you repent? Certainly. Uh, we are sinful. Mm -hmm. we, we repent. We turn away from, from sin and turn to Jesus. You know, Jesus Christ has come. He has died for you. He has made you right with God. Believe it. That's it. Believe it. Yeah. Okay. All righty. Sometimes short and sweet is the best way to yeah, go. Cool. Yeah, that's, that well, works. The, the thing is, that's the thing about the gospel. It is such a simple, basic thing that it is so hard to keep a hold of. We always want to be doing something, mm -hmm. but that's the law. You know, 
I want to be able to have a set of rules so I can show that that I'm better than him and more holy than him. But I'm not, you know. Yeah. It's all Christ. So, yeah. yeah that, and as humans, and we try to read between the lines places where we shouldn't, and we don't read between the lines in places that we should. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, that, that's also um, a lot of what was going on during Jesus' time with the Pharisees is they mm-hmm. were, um, you know, righteous according to the law as they saw it and then they were condemned because they were kind of missing the whole point exactly um, following rules instead of why those rules were there in the first place the law can never make you right with god and that's that's what the law is supposed to show us and they just weren't getting it they were most people don't but with faith we realize you know i am a sinner but christ has made me right with god i'm forgiven so repent and believe that's really the the answer yeah and I think that's lost a lot in modern times due to egotism and emotional uh, superiority complexes Certainly. that we put upon ourselves. Certainly, yeah. Alrighty, and for our next question, what is the role and nuance between faith and works and one's faith journey? Mm, mm. Well, that kind of is an extension from the the previous question. You know, works and faith. Well, as as James said, uh, you know. Show me your your faith through your well. Show show me your 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 works through your faith. I'll show you my faith by my works. And and people once again try to work their way to God, but no. When a person believes in the gospel, believes that for Christ's sake they have been made right with God, that they are forgiven, they have eternal life. Uh, good works are bound to follow as a natural fruit. It just happens. Uh, a person becomes a a new and different person uh, with that realization, that abiding faith, and certainly as they're fed with with the word and as they grow and mature in that faith, uh, the the basic personality of the individual is certainly there. That doesn't change, but things that maybe were important to them in the past aren't so much anymore. They're more looking outward and. Uh, God is dwelling within them and using them and their uniqueness and their abilities to love others through them. And they become little Christs to the people around them. Uh, Good works, properly speaking, are anything uh, that the Christian does in faith. So going to work every day, doing the laundry, you know, being patient with your neighbor whose dog just duke eating your bushes you know these are good works you know uh inspired by the love of god first of all for you so works are basically an extension of faith and they're not necessarily salvific in themselves but they're kind of the fruit of your faith is basically right works are never uh, our our works are are never salvific they are as you said just the the natural uh, result of of faith all right. Well, what exactly does sin do to people? What does sin do to people? It separates people from God. Sin separates you from God. And if you're separated from God, you're separated from forgiveness. You're separated from eternal life. Uh, you are in your sins. Uh, you are uh, subject to God's wrath and uh upon your death, uh, eternal torment in hell. That is what sin uh, does to us. 
And that's why it is such a, a horrible, terrifying thing. And apart, once again, apart from Christ, that's everyone's future. Mm -hmm. I think kind of one of the thing, one of the themes that we've had in interviewing some of the pastors uh, is um, in that faith versus works debate discussion that is largely had mostly within the Protestant world. Mm -hmm. um, why, if if all you need to be saved is faith? then why do all this other stuff? Why ha why do works? What's the point? Mm -hmm. You know, um, you say uh, that sin separates you from God. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, I don't know where I'm trying to go with that. Um, I'm letting the gears go up here. <laughs> the steam's coming out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I guess kind of the idea is um, if I'm already saved, why do anything else? Basically, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. can I think that can be a natural posture for someone who really just believes that all you need is faith. Then mm -hmm. what's the point of doing all this other Christian stuff? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, uh, it's easy to to uh, fall into the trap of cheap grace. You know, I you know God has done it all, so that's a free ticket for me. I can do whatever the heck I want to. Uh, no, sin is still sin, and we are are called to uh, take care of each other. So, uh, once again, it's not really for a person who has a a living faith. The question "Why should I?" Uh, would actually be just a a question uh, coming from the old original sin, that self centeredness, because faith in the gospel once again uh, creates the the love of Christ within us which naturally wants to uh, serve the other serve the neighbor which is what we are called to do in the first place so that um, that impulse to say why do anything else in and of itself is basically just pride that's that's the, the fleshly nature yeah okay yeah. and which which we're you know the when a person, uh, is a Christian when they believe they have a, a tug of war at that point between the inherent fleshly nature, original sin, and the new spirit within them. And that is going to continue as long as you're this side of eternity. It's there. It's there in all of us. And that will foster questions like, well, why should I? As opposed to just you know letting your faith lead you and, and do things based on the impulse of love. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the little depiction of an angel on this side, a devil on this side. That's a great illustration, yeah. And yeah. then when thinking of it, when you look at the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. which are major points in Christianity, you look at love, love, love neighbor. thy neighbor, yeah. do unto others as you would want to be done unto you. Those in itself are helping and serving each other. And loving each other. So why? Well, you can read the Ten Commandments and figure out why from there. Mm -hmm. It's one thing I've noticed over time as I've looked and thought about these things. Is why? Well, if you are saved, you're following the tenets put forth. And you should feel you should work. Obligated to, to yeah. follow what you're committed to. Yeah. And have yeah. the power of God work through you. 
Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, for the next one, this is kind of related to the sacraments that we talked about earlier. Um, how do you view the Lord's Supper and what implications does that view hold? I know some places will call it the Eucharist or communion. Mm -hmm. I, I think you mentioned Lord's Supper earlier, so I'd go with that. Yeah. And, and all those names are, are interchangeable. Um, certainly it's, it's a sacrament. It's a means of grace uh, by which Christ gives us his body and his blood uh, for the strengthening of faith and the forgiveness of sins. A person does not need to partake of the Lord's Supper for their salvation, but when a person uh, is of the Christian faith, uh, why would they not hunger for this? So it is it is a means of grace for the, the Christian uh, who has come into the church. So uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper would... Uh, assume first baptism and instruction so that a person uh, can examine themselves and, and prepare themselves to take the Lord's Supper to their blessing, uh, as opposed to coming to the altar unrepentant, uh, unforgiving, uh, unbelieving, in which case that person, uh, we believe, teach and confess, still takes you know, Christ's very body and blood uh, in that bread and wine but not to their blessing, instead to their judgment. So the Lord's Supper is meant to be a great blessing, and it is. But a person must be prepared to take it properly. Okay. So kind of digging in deeper to the theology of that, you would mm -hmm. say that it's a more, a, a more literal body and blood. It certainly is. It certainly okay. is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well... To some people, the the next logical question would be, isn't that cannibalism? Aren't you aren't you just eating Jesus? What kind of, And this is I think this is actually mentioned in one of the Gospels where uh, when Jesus started teaching this, people turned away because it was a very hard teaching and it, it was very strange. Um, so how would you articulate that to a modern audience that might think, aren't you just engaging in religious cannibalism? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well. A very old argument of early on in Protestantism is Wingley, you know, ridiculed this, and uh, many traditions do not recognize uh, this sacrament as actually distributing Christ's body and blood, and he's not distributing body parts, um, but his entire body, you know, to each person. Uh, the first thing we have to remember is that Jesus is God in the flesh. And despite what we do not understand, God's word does stuff. And so when God says of bread, take, eat, this is my body, then we have to take God at his word. This is his body given into death for you. I think Martin Luther said is means is. Exactly. Is means is. And uh, when he takes wine and says, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of all sins, he means this is his blood. How is his body, his blood present uh, in the bread and wine? Uh, in Lutheranism, we say the most honest answer. We don't know. It simply is. And so we like to say that, that uh, in the Lord's Supper, his body and blood are truly, really present in, with, and under the bread and wine. 
as opposed to the Roman tradition, which would say that once the priest consecrates those elements, they are no longer bread and wine. Although you can't perceive it, it is actually flesh and blood, and evermore shall be. So that goes into a whole lot of other different things that they have to deal with. But no, we say that uh, he is present in the bread and wine, really and truly, for the sake of distributing the sacrifice that has been made to his people. And uh, even in the Old Testament, when a sacrifice was made, uh, some of that sacrifice was distributed. It was eaten. So this is certainly consistent with all of that. All right. All righty. And for our next question, if God is truly omniscient, mm -hmm. do we really have free will? This is kind of that big uh, philosophical debate of uh, uh, yes. ver free will versus determinism type thing. Mm -hmm. How would you, I know that's a big question and a giant rabbit hole, but how would you approach that? If God is omniscient and he knows everything we're going to do, mm -hmm. then how exactly do we have free will if God already knows what we're going to do? Mm -hmm. How would mm -hmm. you kind of nuance that? Well, certainly God knows everything because he's God. He's eternal. Um, and he has given us free will. So although we have free choice in, in our decisions, he already knows, you know, he's literally way ahead of us. So, yeah. So our free will and his omniscience are really two separate things. You know, he's, he's not created robots. You know, human beings are, you know, independent, you know, beings of, of free will. Uh, you can decide, you know, when you want to get up in the morning, what sort of work you want to do, uh, where you want to go. Uh, God knows all of this before it even takes place. You know, for, for God, you know, who is eternal, not bound by time or space, you know, this is all like watching a movie he's seen a thousand times before. He knows you know, exactly what's going on before it happens. He knows the end before the movie starts. That doesn't change the fact that uh, within our existence, we are making our choices with regards to the things in our life. Now, we don't have free will of ourselves regarding faith. Once again, we cannot make ourselves believe. The Holy Spirit comes to us and we can reject the gospel, but we cannot decide to believe, which is a whole other argument. But uh, in a nutshell, decision theology is not proper theology. So, you know, faith is the gift of God through the Holy Spirit. Because we are inherently sinful, we, we can't conceive of God as, as loving. We only conceive of ourselves of God as the guy who's just waiting to hit us with the lightning bolt. So. Right. Alrighty. Do you think religion and science are at odds? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now, when science becomes a religion, there's a problem. There's going to be some differences. But, you know, science is the study of God's creation and, and the laws of nature which God has put in place. Um, that said, the only baseline that science has to measure things by is is what is already here so when they start to speculate about creation and argue against the six-day creation well they're arguing about things that they have no means of, of measuring in the first place really 
So science is a study of, of the physical creation and, and learning, you know, how it works and and what amazing, wonderful things science has done for us. It certainly made our lives a lot easier. I mean, the, the medical uh, sciences alone has literally been a lifesaver. So, you know, we, we cannot, uh, you know, disregard science uh, in its proper place. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think this question is more uh, for us a question to ask due to the response of the anti-intellectual movement and the emotional movements that are happening in modern times that are trying to break apart, trying to create a split in the road for these two things where when you look back in history... Yeah, kind of like your more fundamentalist types that mm -hmm. are... Um, as I like to put it, they kind of dogmatize young earth creationism as like, you have to believe this or else you're not Christian. And... I mean, you can. There are other views, though. I don't. I don't think that is one of the most important things to get hung up on. But um, it, and and I think especially, kind of what this question is getting at is there is, like I remember at my old church, which was very fundamentalist, there was a a very strong tension uh, between creation and evolution, mm -hmm. and that whole debate. Um, and what I would see, um is a lot of Christians would straight up deny evolution entirely a priori just because they have to believe in, or they think they have to believe in young earth creationism. But I, I did you, have you seen the debate between um, Ken Ham? No, it's not Ken Ham. Um, Bill Nye, the science guy. And it, maybe it was Ken Ham. Um, Anyway, it was it was young earth versus evolution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and even the young earth guy admitted some degree of evolution. He just didn't say that humans evolved. He would say that um, animals, for example, under the, the young earth model, um, the animals had a very vibrant gene pool. And when they um, were on the ark, there were a lot less animals. And then after they got off the ark, um, that's what kind of caused them to split off into the many different types of animals we have now. And they kind of, he basically argued for, um, animal evolution, but not human evolution. Um, so even young earth creationism has some degree, and I'm not, I'm not sure if that's representative of all young earth creationists, but even that has some degree of evolution. If you're looking at it from a scientific perspective, um, but anyway, uh, you know, I, I think there are, obviously there are theological issues that need to be worked out if you want to go more old earth or, um, theistic evolution route. Um, I guess kind of, what is your, what is your take on, cause I know that is a huge debate for modern people, especially they think they have to turn their brains off to become Christian because, you know, what happened with the dinosaurs, what happened with, you know, some of the, the radiometric dating that we have that's older than the roughly 6,000 years that we get calculated from the Bible. There's a lot of things there, but I'll let you respond. Well, it really begins with, are the Holy Scriptures God's Word? Are they inspired? Are they without error? Of uh, in Lutheranism, we would say, yes, the Holy Scriptures are 
God's word inspired and without error, period. Uh, this would therefore define us as fundamentalists. Uh, therefore, I and, and we do properly uh, disregard you know, evolution as it is taught. And as the scripture says, by faith we, we believe and know that, that the, the creation was created by, you know, out of nothing, out of nothing. And when you look at the, the Hebrew in the Old Testament, um, it is very specific regarding the six-day creation that, you know, uh, in the beginning God created. Uh, he said, let there be light, and there was light. And, and then the Hebrew literally translates, and, and there was evening and there was morning, a day, one. Very specific. Uh, with regards to time. So God certainly spoke everything into existence. Um, once again, God's Word does stuff. And uh, science uh, measures what is already there, and it really cannot speak to what wasn't there to begin with. And uh, with regards to measuring how old something would be, uh, if God hypothetically, you know, took some more dust out of the earth, formed it into a human being, and and breathed life into him, and he walked in here, how old would you say he is? I don't know. Well, I don't know. However, however old he wants we, to be, we we would we would have to assume, you know, a young adult male, probably, you know, let's say in his early twenties, when the fact of the matter is he was created thirty seconds ago. Yeah, so. You know, science measures what is there, but before that, what happened? And one of the interesting things is you know, when they have questions, and I really like Ken Ham and the, the answers in Genesis group because so much, uh, so many scientific questions uh, really can potentially be explained through uh, the catastrophic flood of Noah, which wasn't just legend, it absolutely happened. Um, were there dinosaurs and, and men living together? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, these aren't things that, that I as a parish pastor think about a whole lot, but when people come up with the idea of evolution, well, we know that, that species adapt to their environments uh, within the species. Uh, but evolving from one species to another, uh, the the science has still not resolved the matter of of missing links and 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 transition species and things like this and and if for example people have evolved from apes the the simple question is always there well then why are there still apes you know so there there are many many things that uh, that when science becomes a religion it it goes down routes that, that really make for very poor theology. And when we put our egos over the scriptures, as we tend to do, uh, we very much misinterpret scripture and, and lose sight of it. And yes, our salvation does not depend on, on creationism or evolution, but when we work out the theology, uh, it really does affect uh, our confidence in our salvation.
So yeah, I'm I'm personally not super. I don't know where I stand on the whole um, origins debate. I'm mm-hmm. I'm more open, but the the way I've looked at it is, um, it it doesn't really matter all that much. I mean, like if if I want to appeal to a more evolutionary thing, like I can I can appeal to that. If I want to appeal to a more creationist type thing, I can do that. Um, I, I think there are answers either way you go. Um, but it's not it's not the most important thing in the world but also kind of the middle route i've taken up to this point is saying that genesis is trying to get across the theology of what happened whereas science is uh proving it or pointing towards maybe the mechanics the scientific how it happened so they're trying to tell two different stories one's more theological one's more scientific if god tried to write a science textbook for genesis people would not understand it because science didn't exist back then so it's the way i look at it is it's kind of there's two different stories being told and they're not necessarily opposed to one another but it is kind of a puzzle to try and figure out how they go together just kind of really at the root of what this question is is Mm. like how exactly do those two pieces fit together when like you said in in modern day um a lot of a lot of christians and a lot of modern science try uh and create like a cultural divide on mm-hmm. this specific issue and i just don't think it matters <laughs> I, yeah. I mean right and I there's one thing that i remember hearing in the church as a kid through god all things are possible and with god being in omniscient being if we can wrap our heads around how something happened he can obviously do that and more yeah so Mm -hmm. when i as a kid when i heard of the big bang and all these things i'm like god could easily do that Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that that's one of one of the things we talked about in our origins of life in the universe episode we were talking about um the big bang points to an absolute beginning of the universe Mm-hmm. Well, why is there an absolute beginning? Because before that, everyone just thought it was eternal. And if there's an absolute beginning, there has to be an absolute cause for that beginning, which points to theism. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a fun As, little rabbit hole. Yeah, there, there's a lot. There's a lot there. But um, And also, I think another issue is with modern times, the reason science and religion continue to in the public eye split is due to the the militant atheist who use that as a religion and it's a shame Scientology has already been taken as a name because that's what I would call it <laughs> yeah yeah but we, we could go on and on for that um, but I, I think moving on to the next question uh, and this is something we've kind of alluded to in previous episodes, but we haven't specifically addressed quite yet. Um, in your opinion, how should Christians interact with politics? Hmm. Well, certainly Christians should always interact with everything uh, based on their faith. And, uh, you know, we make a mistake when we compartmentalize whether a person's a Christian or whatever they're, they're faith tradition is, if they even have a faith tradition, uh, it should, uh, their entire life should be informed by it rather than compartmentalizing. You know, like they say, saint on Sunday, sinner on Monday. No, 
the Christian faith is, is about living the life of a Christian. It informs everything that a person does. Uh, in our country, uh, we have still the, uh, the great blessing that citizens are participants uh, in our political system. And so as citizens, we should absolutely exercise our right uh, to vote, our right to be heard, and uh, to, to our right to be heard in the public square as well. So uh, does that answer yeah. the question, do you think? Yeah, or... uh, I, guess, I guess kind of like um, you can have, there are certain brands of Christians that are very militant about their politics, and mm -hmm. that seems to be their, the, the implications of Christianity to them necessarily lead to political involvement. I guess how much political involvement is appropriate, how much is too much, is mm -hmm. there too much, um, should Christians just not, you know, be super political? Where, where's kind of like the, the line for that? Mm -hmm. Or does it, does it matter? Does it depend on the person? I would say as far as involvement in the political arena, that would depend on the individual. Uh, as far as, uh, politics in general go, a person's faith should certainly inform their, their politics, uh, while at the same time there is a separation within the church between secular politics and, and what is taught. We're not going to uh, preach politics from the pulpit. Right. Uh, here you know, we preach and teach the Word of God, how that informs one's politics. Uh, well, it should, uh, but that uh, how a person acts uh, in the world, whether it's political or, or anything else, really, uh, that's an individual thing. But their, their faith should certainly inform uh, the decisions they make and, and the way they react to things. Yeah, I think we've, we've definitely talked about that a little bit because yeah. there is a um, certain type of person out there that will say, keep religion and politics separate. Church, separation of church and state. You keep your religion out of your politics. And well, as we've discussed in previous episodes, um, a lot of political issues at their core are moral issues. And of course, you're going to act out of your moral obligations when you're going to vote on something. Yeah, I think that's brought forth due to the fact that when we were founded as a country, we were founded as for religious freedom to avoid persecution from because when Puritans, Quakers all came over, they were persecuted or uh, several other religions came over or theologies came over because they were persecuted or they were labeled criminals or this or that. And so I think the message shouldn't be necessarily it should be separation, but it should be also inclusion because you should separate the power structures, but right, the yeah. moral obligations are still there. Yeah. I think people misconstrue that due to modern language brought forth mm -hmm. and the weaponization of politics and in modern times, the emotional weaponization of religion at times. Yeah. If, if I may, it's important to remember uh, what... The principle of separation of church and state is also, you know, 
we we don't in the United States have a state religion where you must be a member of this, you must believe this. In in the United States, uh, just like most everything else, a religion is part of the free market system. So uh, freedom of conscience goes along with that because of the fact, as you said, you know, many people came over here uh, as a result of severe persecutions. So that was one of the very basic founding principles of our country was to make sure that the state did not uh, make you have to believe or support any particular church or or belief system. And the state is not going to make laws or, or persecute a person uh, because of that. So it's not freedom from religion, it's freedom of religion and separation of of the, the church and state by by that principle so gotcha yeah and i think that's been forgotten recently yeah and that's why a lot of presidents and when you look back in history books will label their religion as a freemason so they want to have to disclose that to the public because to be a freemason all you have to be is a theist yeah what is um actually one of one of the episodes we've recorded recently is uh where christians in america have failed it's a very dreary title, but uh, it, we, we kind of mentioned, I think, roughly 12 or 15 things that we think Christians in America could work on. So what is one general thing that you think Christians in America should work on? Mm-hmm. If you had to pick one, I know that there's probably a few Just one? Pull. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that uh, across Christendom, especially in the United States where, where it's been very easy to be a Christian for a very long period of time, uh, we've really gotten away from the basic tenets of the faith. And I would say it's important for a Christian, certainly here or anywhere, uh, to know what they believe and why they believe it. Um, when we get away from that, we get away from our confession of faith and, and all the things that are informed by that confession of faith. You're preaching to the choir. I think that's that's a theme that we've discussed yeah. in pretty much every episode, because uh, a lot of the episodes are more philosophical oriented, sure. and and why you should believe what you believe, and what the implications of those beliefs mm -hmm. are. Um, I think a lot of people could benefit, especially in dialogue with other people, from just a little bit of apologetics. Just mm -hmm. have a little bit of uh, mm -hmm. be informed on what you believe and why you believe it. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, that's one thing we all three have different belief systems. Mm -hmm. We're all three on different spectrums. But we think a little differently than yeah. Than but at everybody. the end of the end of the day, we all know that we believe something, and if we don't know a certain answer, we are working to find that answer. Mm -hmm. It's like I don't know necessarily if I'm going to be agnostic forever because I'm obviously open to religion. But I do know that I'm searching. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so if there's a question I don't know, I'm searching for that answer. And I think a lot of people are just complacent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we're wrapping up, uh, for the last question here is, what would be the process to become a member of your church? Repent and believe. <laughs> oh, that was the other question. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, to become a member of this congregation. Right, yeah. Um, well, there would be a period of... Uh, adult instruction where we would go through, you know, here is, you know, the doctrines that we teach. This is the Christian faith. And uh, this would provide opportunity for discussion 
and uh, looking at the scriptures and and working through things. Uh, if a person uh, at the conclusion of that period of instruction says, yes, I believe this is true, this is my confession of faith, then they would be eligible to uh, become a member of this congregation. Uh, they would uh, typically, in a regular service, they would uh, you know, confess that faith uh, through a simple a formatted uh, you know, question and answer uh, right in front of the congregation. Uh, they would be welcomed into membership, and at that point, they they are a member. So, for for junior members, uh, children in our congregation, they are brought up in the faith, and uh, it's similar to adult instruction, except uh, they have a lot of memory work to do, which the adults don't have. It's just simple sitting with me and uh, doing you know question answer of. Uh, back and forth and, and fostering discussion mm -hmm. and just making sure we cover all the bases. Yeah. Would you call it catechesis or no? That's exactly what I would call it, yes. Okay, yeah. gotcha. You, you knew the big word, congratulations. Yeah, yes. I know that's a exact, words. That's exactly what we call it, catechesis. Yeah. Gotcha. All right, well, I think that's about it. Is there any other questions we have? Do you have anything that came up after that? Not off the top of my head, no. I think no. we've pretty well covered and gave out some flesh good fleshed out answers and everything yeah i think the this has been one of the better interviews so well, thank yeah, you very thank much you. no offense to some of the ones that weren't terrible they, they were awful no i'm just kidding yeah there there's just there obviously different pastors have different flavors of the way they respond to questions so i think this one's been definitely very helpful in in terms of having a more traditional understanding of christianity for people um so yeah, I think that's about it. Next next time we're going to be uh, attending your church and we'll be talking about that next week. And uh, that's about it. Um, I think it's been real. Yeah. I Before you say it's been real though, uh, everybody should go review this podcast. I've been forgetting to tell people about that. Um, if you were on like Apple Podcasts or... I don't know, Any whatever, whatever other review. platforms that let you review it, you should review it. And if you can't, you should share it with a friend because we need more people to listen to the podcast. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. That's all I wanted to plug. Join the discussion. Yeah. Follow our social medias. And, uh, it's uh, facing the gates on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can email us at facing the gates pod at gmail.com. If you have comments, questions, or concerns, uh, we will have the, um, Bethlehem, Lutheran Church website link in the description or show notes for this episode. And uh, with that, I think it's been real. I think it's been fun. It's been real fun. See you guys next week. <laughs>